This is Revive Chicago. Listen and be changed. All right. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. No, wait, 1 Timothy. Sorry. That was a test for Tom in the back. (laughs) Uh, Okay. First... (laughs) Excuse me. First Timothy chapter four. I'm just going to read a portion of the chapter here and then we're going to pick through it and we're going to see what God reveals to us today. I don't know how far into the chapter I'll make it. I could make it all the way to the end, but we'll see. So first Timothy chapter four, it says this. The spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God, uh, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of the Lord and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up by the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. We'll go ahead and pause there. The first line, the Spirit clearly says. And I want to pause there and just pray over our church and over, over this message. Because Paul's saying this, the Spirit clearly says. But one of the things that happens is people don't clearly hear the Spirit. We all have our own biases. We all have our own understanding, our own backgrounds. Our own religiosity that we grew up with. And so Paul says, the Spirit clearly says, and then we're like, wait, I'm not, is that so clear? <laughs> this is confusing. What is the Spirit saying? So Lord, I pray right now for Revive Chicago Church, that they would have ears to hear what the Spirit is so clearly saying. God, that these words would not fall on deaf ears that you would stir something in their spirit man throughout this message. Even the, me- even the parts of the message that are convicting, perhaps parts of the message rebuke and convict and train. God, I pray that you would work the way only you can. God, that this is not the message of a man, that this is not the message of Aaron Lage, but that this is the message of the spirit of God. And that it comes across clearly that it bears great fruit. Soften hearts now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So notice this line. Paul says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith. And so then, what a lot of people do today when they preach this message and they preach from this text, is they start going off on the trajectory of end times. And they start talking about the latter times, the end of days. Jesus is coming soon. And we believe Jesus is coming back. But 
in the context of what Paul's talking about, he clearly believes that the later times are then. When he talks about the later times, the passage I just read to you is about right now for him, not right now for us. We're in the later, later times. But he believed that he was in the later times and that he was addressing that specific issue for that moment. And so for us to understand it and to gain the principle, to gain the clarity that Paul had, we have to understand what they understood. Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy's his young protege that he left as the pastor in Ephesus. So Paul has traveled on his missionary travels and he's gone all over the Mediterranean and planted different churches. And one of his favorite groups of people was the church in Ephesus. He stayed there for one of, like the longest, maybe the longest time, I think, of all the churches that he planted. And he went back there and visited more than once. And Timothy was his young protege, and he, he left Timothy there and said, you lead this congregation, you lead this church. And they believed, rightly, they believed that they were in the latter days. That they were living in the time of the fulfillment of prophecy. Because the, the, the early days, so to speak, or the olden days, were the days of the old covenant. The days that were passing away, Paul talks about in other passages. So basically, Jesus inaugurated the end times. Jesus inaugurated with his death and resurrection. Jesus inaugurated the new beginning the end days, the later days. We're still in them. But Jesus started the process. So Paul was talking about that moment for him. This, so this message today isn't about the end times. You're like, oh man. <laughs> but this message isn't about the end times like gets preached so often in our day because it would be a misrepresentation of what this passage is actually talking about. But it's kind of funny because Paul opened it up and he said, the Spirit clearly says, and there's pastors all over North America that preach the exact opposite of what this message is talking about. Because they make it for now. We need to understand, what is Paul dealing with then? What is, what is the church in Ephesus dealing with then? Why did Paul feel so prompted to write Timothy this letter? Because they were in the later times and Timothy was dealing with people who were abandoning their faith. Paul wasn't writing to Timothy about someone who was going to abandon their faith in 2,000 years. Paul was writing to Timothy because there were people in Ephesus who were abandoning their faith. And he needed to speak to a young pastor who was leading a church and say, Don't give in. Don't give in to these deceiving spirits. Don't get in, give in to these teachings by hypocritical liars. And then what do we do now, 2,000 years later? Well, we read that and we get the same encouragement. It's now for us, but it's not predictive prophecy about what's about to happen. It's the age-old thing that happens all the time. People start to fall for hypocritical liars and deceiving spirits. Things taught by demons. So, some will abandon their faith, 
And they will follow these deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And most of you today, you're thinking about like, you know, pulling up the ironing board and plugging in and like, but they didn't have that back then, just so you know. That was funny, guys. Are you, are you all awake? That was funny. Okay, this is not like a modern invention. This is a modern invention that we're thinking of. But the hot iron that Paul is talking about would be like the thing that we would it'd be closer to like the cast iron skillet that you throw the steak on to sear it in the pan, right? They had cast iron that they cooked on then, right? And what do you do with a good steak, right? You pan sear it. And you get it nice and gold and brown, right? And there's like this nice crust and everybody's going to be really hungry after this message. (laughs) I'm working up an appetite, right? And with food, that's a good thing if it's been seared, right? But you all know like that caramelized brown texture on the outside that's so delicious when you're eating it is not something that you want over your heart. That references a hard heart. Your conscience has been seared. But there's actually even more, there's even more of a reference here. The hot iron that was often used would also have been used even at that time to like brand cattle and animals and market as somebody's, right? So think like we think of the cowboy days, but they were, they've been doing this for millennia and marking animals as theirs. So you think about it like this, this searing with the hot iron, like you put it on the animal's flesh and sear it, and now it's marked as somebody's property. So this, this conscience that has been seared, if your conscience gets seared, you're marked as owner owned by that demonic teaching. Like it now owns you, it directs you. It kind of goes to a a deeper level. And this is the last thing that you want as a Christian, as a believer, is to fall for teachings that are false. To fall for a leader who's a hypocritical liar. To fall for the doctrines of demons. Like, you have to be aware. And in Ephesus, this was getting stirred up, and Timothy was dealing with these things. Then. And you know what? We know and understand that there's still hypocritical liars out there today. There's still, there's still false teachers. There's still doctrines of demons being promoted today. So we can absolutely take this and apply it to our life. But too often we're trying to just apply it immediately. We miss the context. We miss what Paul was talking about. We miss the gravity of the situation and what it must have been like for Timothy to deal with this at the start of the early church. And all of these pagan religions and all of these different ideas that are in the melting pot that was Ephesus of the day. Verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. And to be honest, like the first thing I think of when I read that line is even just the Catholic Church, right? Like the priest can't get married and on Fridays abstain from certain foods. Right? Or like, they, and they teach that that's how you serve Jesus. But it's not just the Catholic Church. There's a lot of churches, there's a lot of believers that believe that you are saved by what you eat or what you don't eat. They're saved by, you're saved by your works. You're saved by something that you're doing or that you're not doing. Don't get married. That's a fleshly thing. 
No, it's a godly thing. It has been since the beginning. Guess what? The book of Genesis, before the fall, before the fall, said to be fruitful and multiply, increase and fill the earth. Before the fall, it said the two shall become one flesh. Right? That's, that's the promise of God. That's before the fall. This isn't a result of the fall. Marriage is not the result of the fall. Marriage preceded the fall. Marriage is a beautiful thing. So we don't, get, we don't want to fall for a teaching that says, don't get married. No, are there people that may be called to a single life? There might be people called to that. But it is not a teaching or a doctrine that says this is how it has to be. This is how you have to serve Jesus. This is how you maintain your holiness. That would be a false teaching. That would be a false teaching. Any teaching that forbids you to eat and abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received what? With thanksgiving. Food is to be received with thanksgiving. To be received with joy. We don't like, and this isn't like, okay, well, if, if you're gluten intolerant, go ahead and throw down that gluten. Like, that's not, like, that's not what this message is. Okay? Like, if you have to personally abstain from certain foods, or if you're trying to follow a certain diet, by all means do it. But as a pastor, as a leader, I am not telling you that you have to abstain from gluten in order to be a Christian. You know what I'm saying? Or you have to eat a certain way. You have to be vegetarian or you have to go all carnivore or something like that. Like, no, that is not how you are saved. And in fact, teachings to abstain from certain foods in order to be more holy are actually what? In context, the doctrine of demons. You got to be careful. You got to be careful who you're listening to. All food is to be received. And in, and in context, this is, one of the things, this is one of the things that was happening, okay? So the church in Ephesus is being planted in a very pagan country, very, very pagan city. And these pagans had their own ideas about how they worshipped their gods. But then you had Jews that were coming in, and they were hearing about these followers of Jesus that were teaching people to eat whatever, and they weren't following the Levitical laws which meant to abstain from certain foods. And so Paul is making very clear that we are no longer, we are not going back to Judaism. We are not going back to following the laws of Moses line by line and eat this, don't eat that, eat this, don't eat that. And that's what makes you more holy because God has called a new nation, right? We talked last week about being priests, right? We're called to be priests and kings. We're a new nation under God as believers, as followers of Christ. And so we get to receive all foods with thanksgiving. There's no longer anything that's unclean. There's no longer anything that you eat or don't eat that's going to make you more saved. God listens to my prayers more than yours. But that's how it's taught. That's how it's presented sometimes. And it's, it's, a, very, it's a very sneaky teaching because it kind of makes sense, right? Like if we, if we deny, like, well, the Bible says to deny yourself. The Bible says to deny your flesh. The Bible teaches about fasting. So that's what we should do. We should just deny ourselves. And guys, it was happening already in Paul's day, not even 30 years after Jesus. 
And it got even more drastic. I talked about this recently too. About there were, there were monks that withdrew out of the city and lived in a cave and didn't barely eat anything because they thought that that's what would make them holy. Deny your flesh. Deny your flesh. So they would go on these long, extreme fasts to please God. And Paul says, what? All food was created by God to be received with thanksgiving. That means every time you eat, it's an opportunity to give God thanksgiving for his provision. It's a recognition of his provision. There are times and seasons of your life and your walk with God where he's going to call you to fast. Listen to the Spirit. But there are also going to be most days where you need to eat. And you shouldn't feel bad about eating. You should give thanks. Tell him how good he is. Thank him for providing. Thank him that he has given you sustenance. For everything God created is good. And there's actually, a, there's, a Jewish, there's a Jewish blessing that probably Paul is referencing here that was really popular during this time. And it was just after every, so they would pray before their meal and they would also pray after their meal. After their meal, they would pray a blessing and they would say, God is good and does only good. God is good and does only good. And some of you need to hear that because you still think God's mad at you. You think God's angry, or maybe a little bit frustrated. I wish you would do better. You know, like God's constantly just on your case. And one of the ways that I've heard it said, and I really like it, is that just, God's in a good mood. But he's always in a good mood. Like you're in a good mood sometimes. God's all, his default setting is always a good mood. God is good and God always does good. What if you, what if you incorporated that into your prayer life? What if, what if you looked at every meal as an opportunity to pray that and declare that? What could that do? I mean, you'd be the weirdo Christian. Like everybody, people are used to someone bowing their head and closing their eyes like before the meal. But you're like, you finish your meal and then you bow your head and close your eyes. People are like, what is this person doing? I'm just thanking God. I'm telling myself, I'm telling him, God is good. And he does only good. You need to hear that. You need to know that God is good. God's in a good mood toward you. Toward you. That's the other part you need to know. Because sometimes we get that little like, well, okay, maybe he's in a good mood for somebody else. But he's in a good mood toward you. He's thinking good thoughts about you. <laughs> and you need to know that. You need to get a revelation of that. We all need to get a revelation of that. For everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Not even that turkey. 
I just I hear a lot like this this year in particular. I feel like I heard a lot of people like really ragging on Turkey and like, eh, Turkey's not that great. Da, da. It's like, well, just if it's the received for Thanksgiving, it's good, even if it's dry. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. I'm a good minister. <laughs> Paul's obviously, he's talking to Timothy. Right? And he's reminding Timothy of some of the basics. Because it's easy to get caught up in other things, other teachings, other, and like the basic, some of the basic premise of our faith is God is good. Everything he does is good. His provision is good. And we can get off track so quick. We like to get caught up in all of these other things. And Paul is reminding Timothy, this is the stuff that makes you a good minister. When you remind people of these things, this is what makes you a good minister. Because otherwise you're going to get off track and you're going to get, get into controversy and arguments. And you need to come back to the basic level and remind people God is good. He has good for you. Yeah, we could do that all the time, right? That's like a chorus that said. Like we, need to, we need to think that way. We need to declare it and not make it some religious thing. We need to really believe it in our spirit, man. And he says, Timothy, you will be a good minister if you point this out to the brothers. Brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And this is interesting because all of the, like, these godless myths and old wives' tales, one, like, all the commentaries are talking about is how women of the day in Timothy's time were uneducated. And so they would easily believe anything and everything. And then they would get together and talk about it. And these ideas and these weird things would get passed around and chattered about and talked about and gossiped about. And all of these weird beliefs, weird ideas, it's like... Why do people still rub rabbit's feet? And I'm sure it's because of some old wives' tale that Paul was addressing back in Ephesus. Right? Like there's these just these weird ideas that come out of nowhere. You're like, where did you get, how did this even become a thing? And Paul reminds him, don't even, like have nothing to do with those. These godless myths, these, these kind of, these stories told by the uneducated. And I also think it's important, like this is, is, I'm going to step on some toes, but like this is something women in this room, like you need to be aware of your proclivity to believe stuff. You're educated now, but you need to be aware that you might get caught up in stuff that you shouldn't be caught up in. That you might believe some stuff, you might fall prey to some stuff that is not biblical, it's just a godless myth. It's an old wives' tale. And it's something that if you pass it around or you believe it or you give it credence, then you're falling for it like Paul warned against. Guys, we have, we have our own stuff we fall for. But like, let's, let's address this for what it is, right? And let's, like, 
guys get caught up in stuff too. So this isn't like a, I'm just going to bash all women moment, right? I'm not bashing you. I'm pointing out what scripture is talking about. Okay. And you need to be on your guard. And men and women, we need each other to hold each other accountable because you can get off track. So avoid those things. Make sure you're, make sure you're stick. Like one of the ways that you can avoid it is stick with this. If it's not in here, if it's not emphasized in here, if you're emphasizing something that's written in small letters, be careful. Just be careful. Because you can take one verse out of here and make a whole doctrine out of it, and it's not meant to be a big old doctrinal thing. We need to put it in perspective. We need to emphasize the things that the Bible, like you've all heard that line, right? Major on the majors, minor on the minors. Like this is that, this is that line. Because if you start to make a minor thing a major thing, it becomes a myth. It becomes an old wives tale. And what does he say to do? He says, rather train yourself to be godly. How many, how many of us think in those terms? Like we think of going to the gym and like you train yourself physically. Go lift some weights, go run, get some cardio in. But train your spirit? People neglect this. Train yourself to be godly. Well, I don't want to be religious. And we're so afraid to be religious that we don't train ourselves. Like you have to actually train yourself. The way that the antidote to the godless myths and the old wives' tales is to train yourself to be godly. To follow his word. And that takes work. That takes effort. Right? And you can't just, like, wouldn't it be nice if you go to the gym, run around the track once, do a couple push-ups, and suddenly you're fit? Yeah. That's not how it works, is it? You have to do it over and over and over and over again. Training means day in, day out. Like, well, I read my Bible last week. Oh, I read through, like, sometimes I'll get in a conversation with, like, an atheist or somebody who do doesn't believe. They're like, well, I read the Bible once. Okay. <laughs> Anybody can do that. It's not that hard, right? Like, that doesn't mean you're trained to be godly. That doesn't mean you actually know what it was about. You just read it like a book. You treated it as something like you read Harry Potter or Narnia or something. It's like, it's just a bunch of myths to you, right? It's like, this, this is not just a bunch of myths. This is truth. And you need to read it that way. And you need to train yourself in it. And you, like, in order to train it, it's purposeful. Right? Like you have to actually set aside time. Like your, your body doesn't get trained at the gym by intentions. It gets trained by follow through. Your spirit man doesn't get trained by good intentions. Well, God knows my heart. I meant to read my Bible. I meant to spend some time praying. I thought about God a little bit. I got, in an I got in a faith argument online with somebody. I proved them wrong. But are you training yourself to be godly? Are you setting aside that regular time? And, 
I mean, it's amazing. Like, I'll just keep using the, the fitness thing because Paul references it. He says, for physical training is of some value. Like, think about that. I'm into physical training. I, I enjoy it. I'm one of those weirdos. But physical training is of some value. Godliness has value for what? All things. Godliness has value for all things. You need to purposely train yourself to be godly because it has value in every other area of your life. Like if you're going to neglect some training, I would rather you neglect your physical training if it means that you're going to spiritually train. And maybe you can find a way to combine the two. Excuse me. Physical training is just, it's got some value. But godliness has value for all things. And listen to this line, guys. This always blows me away. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You training yourself on a regular basis, training your spirit man on a regular basis has value for this life and the next. Like you're training yourself for eternity when you train yourself in godliness. When you learn, because godly people think differently. And and guys, it's a simple, because let's, let's address it another way even. Oftentimes when you're listening to a sermon, you're engaging God's word, you're engaging it through knowledge. Oh, I've heard that before. How many of you in here have heard before God is good? Well, I shouldn't have even bothered saying it then, right? You all already know. No, that's, that's ludicrous, right? Like, I'm not trying to tell you something you don't know. I'm not trying to give you information. The gospel is not information. The gospel trains you. The word of God trains you. So you have to not only know and have heard before that God is good, you need to train yourself in it. You need to, tomorrow, you need to tell yourself God is good. Because I'm not going to be there with you tomorrow. You need to speak to your spirit man and say God is good. And you need, like, if you're doing it after every meal, then hopefully at least three times a day, you're saying God is good and he only does good. And you train yourself to think that way because you've been trained by a culture, you've been trained by a dead religion that has told you that God's mad. You have to untrain that. You have to push back against that. You have to remind yourself because our own minds will say God's not good. He's mad at me. I messed up again. He's angry at me. He doesn't want to talk to me. No, God is good and he only does good. Train yourself in it. And to me, this isn't a religious thing. Like this is a, you could literally do this three times a day for the next week and start to train yourself and your mental fitness, your spiritual fitness will be different next Sunday. Oh, now you all got homework. Right? But that's the training. That's the way you train. Like, I'm trying to put it in in terms that we can all not just understand, but actually apply and do. How hard would it be for you to start to say, I'm going to tell myself and tell God he is good and he only does good after every meal. 
I don't know. Maybe some of you are like, maybe it's easier for you to skip meals or forget meals. I don't, I don't forget meals. <laughs> like never, ever. <laughs> I never forget a meal. <laughs> Sometimes I just make up new reasons to have one. I'm like, ah, three wasn't enough today. Let's have another one. And I'll just thank God for it because it's, if it's done with Thanksgiving, I'm good, right? <laughs> Train yourself. Train yourself to be godly. You can do that. You can. Here's the other part. I can't train you to be godly. I can tell you about it. I can preach it. And here's, like, now you know. Now you know a key. Now you know a way to do it. You have to actually do it. The only one I can train is myself and my kids. Right? I can train them. I can train myself, but I can't, I can't train for you. I can't pick up the weights for you. Right? Just in the same way, when you, if you go to the gym and you hire a trainer, how ridiculous it would it be if you hired a trainer and then you just watched them work out? Like, I feel more fit. I feel so, I feel so motivated. I'm, I'm healthy now. Like, I, I, work out, I work out with a trainer, guys. <laughs> like, isn't that ridiculous? But that's a little, like, it's one of the downsides of Sunday morning church. Is you can sit there and watch me work out, right? You can, you're watching me teach about the word. And you can walk out of here motivated and feeling a little bit more holy, But if you never actually go and apply it, you never actually train yourself, you're not going to get any results. Nothing's going to change. It's the same thing as you going to the gym, watching your trainer work out. And you're going to get the same results. But you know all the stuff. You know all the stuff. The trainer, as they were going through it, they're like, this is why you work this muscle. This is why you jump this way. This is why you run this fast. They told you all that. You know all the stuff. But you didn't do it. And you are training not just for this life, but for the next. You, got, you, you have eternity in mind. That, th- this blows me away that what I do now has an effect on that future time. And Paul goes on, verse 9. He said, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And this is, and for this we labor and strive. That if we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior, or sorry, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. And here's one of those, the reason why I wanted to bring this one up is because this is one of the godless myths and old wives' tales of our day. Well, Jesus died for everybody, right? And there's a teaching that goes around. It's prevalent in a few churches. And the idea is, the way that they present it, is everybody's going to be saved, even Hitler, because Jesus died for all. 
Like, every, like, it doesn't really matter if you believe or not. It doesn't matter if you go to church or not. It doesn't matter if you serve a different God or another religion. You're going to, because Jesus died, everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to heaven. It's not just all dogs go to heaven. All the crazy people do too. Jesus died for all. And Paul makes clear here when he's talking to Timothy, he says, he's the savior of all men. Right? He died to save all. But especially those who believe. There's a difference between those who believe and those who don't. Okay, So Jesus' death and resurrection provided the opportunity for all to be saved. But not all will be saved. Because not all will believe. That's a big distinction. Right? If I, if I reached in my pocket and gave everyone in here a coupon for a free hamburger at a burger joint, the provision has been made for every one of you in here to have a free burger. But not all of you are going to go. Right? And in fact, you don't have to go. You don't have to go get a burger. Maybe you don't like burgers. Maybe you don't like that particular burger joint. So you can, what do you do? You reject the coupon. The coupon was given to you. Everything was provided. You had full opportunity to take advantage of a free burger, but you have the choice to accept it or reject it. You have the choice to go get that free burger or not get that free burger. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection did. It provided the opportunity for all men to come to him. It provided the opportunity for everyone to be saved. The the, the salvation of all has been paid for. But not all accept it. Not all believe it. And this is this much higher stakes than some burger. Right? If I handed out, if I handed out a burger coupon, I'm not going to be offended if you don't go get the burger. It's no big deal. Right? But your salvation that was bought and purchased with somebody's life and death, it's a pretty steep thing to reject. So this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. We have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. This is something that we have a hard time with in our era. I bring this up from time to time. Who likes being commanded what to do? Yeah, I figured this would not be the hand-raising moment of the service. Nobody likes being told what to do. Nobody likes being commanded to do something. Something inside of us is just like, ugh. I, I, I specifically don't want to do it now just because you told me. But Paul doesn't back down from that, and he's encouraging Timothy Command these things. You have to say it strong. You have to say it clear. You have to share these things. And so I'm commanding these things not because of who I am, but because of what Scripture says. Because of what it declares. The things I'm telling you today are commands. They're not suggestions. Wait, what? 
Think about that for a second, guys. As believers who, who you say you love and serve Jesus, you have been commanded to train yourself in godliness. Oh, now I don't want to do it. That's the flesh. You have to recognize it for what it is. It's the flesh stirring up in you. Passions of the flesh. And that's specifically what we train for. Right? The flesh doesn't get to determine what you do or don't do. The flesh has to die. And Timothy was young. He, Paul, Paul, listen to this next line, verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Timothy is likely, we don't know how, how old he was when Paul wrote this, but it's likely he's around 25, maybe 30. He's a young guy. And in their day, they respected elders. They respected people who, like, you, you couldn't get to a lot of positions until you were at least 40. And you kind of see that ageism in, a, like, in our day, it's, it's different because we have this, like, respect your elders, but young people are the ones that actually go do stuff and create stuff. And so our culture very much, like, emphasizes youth and energy and vibrancy and youngness. You know? And we're like, us young people, we're like, we really love this verse. Like, I'm not going to let anybody look down on me because I'm young. But how? How do you not let them look down on you because you're young? Because you set an example for the believers in your speech, in your life, in your love, in your faith. And in your purity. That's five big things. Right? Set an example. We have a pretty young congregation. We need, we need to get some more elders. <laughs> we need to get, get this kind of balanced out and have a good mix. We have a, pretty good, we have a pretty young congregation overall. And we, kind of, we like the first part of this verse. Like, yeah, I'm not going to let anybody look down at me because I'm young. Hmm, I don't know about that other stuff, though. But Paul admonishes Timothy. If you're going to not let them look down on you because you're young, what do you have to do? You have to hold yourself accountable to a high level of speech. You can't just talk any certain way. You get to just say what you want. Like, I believe in free speech as a concept, but as a Christian, I don't get to just say whatever I want. I'm holding myself accountable to the Father. I talk a certain way because of my Father in heaven. There's certain words that I avoid because of my Father in heaven. I set an example in my speech, just in the way that I talk, how I talk about other people. There's, I won't talk about people a certain way because I'm setting an example in my speech. It just doesn't need to be said. I don't talk down about other people. Because it doesn't need to be said. What's the, everybody knows this line too, right? If you don't have anything nice to say. But then when the moment gets right, and you're angry enough, oh boy, 
You want to say all the not nice things, right? You want to unleash, you want to cut people down to size. You want to just let loose and say whatever you want. But is that, is that an example? No, that's an ex- if it's an example, it's an example of what not to do. Right? You don't just get a free pass when you're angry, when your flesh rises up. No, that's actually the best moment to set the example. And it doesn't mean that you don't address issues. It doesn't, if, there's, if there's a reason that you're mad, it's, I'm not saying just sweep it under the rug, pretend like it didn't happen. Okay? But how can you address it in a way that's actually productive? How can you address it with another person in a way that builds them up and encourages them or helps them see where they hurt you without you hurting them in return? Another example of speech that people fall for a lot is complaining. And they don't even realize they're doing it. And they just complain. And it starts like the moment they wake up. Oh, it's a rainy day. And then it just doesn't stop all day. And the weather determines their mood. And then how someone cut them off on the road determines their mood at work. And then someone at work says something. And, then, and it just builds. And by the end of the day, you were mad at everything and everyone. Because you complained all day and you fed that attitude. You trained yourself. Right? You trained yourself. So we set an example for the believers in speech, in life. How you live. Your life should be an example to other people. They should, be, they should look at you and be like, I want to be you. Right? They should look at how you live, how, how your family functions, how, how you spend your money, how you teach your kids, how, like all of these different areas. They should look at your life and want to be like you, to have something to emulate. In love. How do you love? Is your love obvious? Is your compassion for other people visible? Can they tell? Paul's coaching Timothy, saying your love should be visible. You should be setting an example in this area. Do you love well? And most of us, we love in response to love. And when someone's acting unloving, we shut off our love. It's a natural human thing to do. Right? When you feel like somebody's hurting you, you're like, oh, shutting down the love wagon. Right? Like we don't even, we don't want to help them. It just, it shuts us down. It turns us off. When you feel like someone's being unloving toward you. But that's actually, as believers, as Christians, that's the moment you need to love the most. You love back. You love in return. Even when people are being unloving towards you. When they're being harsh towards you. When they're mistreating you. Jesus says you're going to be persecuted. It's like, we're not even being persecuted. We're just being mistreated by people who say they love us. (laughs) And we can't love them back. 
Set an example in speech, in life, in love. Do you turn your love off and on based on your mood? You can train, you guys, you, apparently you can train for this. You can train for this. You can train to keep your love on. One of my favorite books, it's one of the, like if you've been, if you're married in here, you've probably had me recommend reading a book called Keep Your Love On. The idea is that you want to keep your love on all the time. That's what Jesus did. He walked around the city streets and what did he do? He had compassion on the hurting. But Jesus wasn't a pushover, right? The Pharisees would come up and verbally attack him in front of the crowds. And he didn't just be like, oh, whatever you say, I love you. Right? Jesus wasn't a pushover. Like some of the things that he said back to the Pharisees, we look at it and we're like, wow, that was harsh. But it was actually a loving thing to say because they needed to hear it. There's things that are, have come out in this sermon already. You're like, well, that, doesn't, that wasn't that loving, Pastor Aaron. But you needed to hear it. Right? It needs to be said. It needs to be declared. It needs to be spoken. Love doesn't mean you're just a pushover and a doormat. Right? You set an example in how you love. And you don't turn it off. You love the unlovable. You have compassion toward the needy. But you're strong when you need to be strong. You can, it's crazy, you can lovingly rebuke somebody. Right? That's, that's tough to do. To lovingly rebuke somebody. It's not fun. To tell someone, and this is, this is something, like obviously Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor. I kind of know this feeling as a pastor. I've had to lovingly rebuke someone and correct someone. And tell them, hey, you're wrong. You're off. You're, your trajectory's off. Or explain whatever. And stand up. And it was not fun. And there's several, like, and it happens, like it happened in Kansas City, it's happened here several times. Sometimes it happens in my sermons. And I'm lovingly correcting and rebuking things that you need to hear. And I don't want to soft pedal the gospel. I don't want to soft pedal God's word. I've got to declare it. I've got to say it. And I don't, it doesn't mean I have to say it mean. Right? There's there's some preachers out there, guys, that they, they just say mean stuff. Just for the sake of it. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's not setting an example of love. Right? I'm not harsh just to be harsh, but sometimes I need to lovingly say harsh things because you need to hear it, because you need to grow. Right? If we are, if our desire is to do what God commands and train ourselves to be godly, then sometimes you need to hear one more. Let's go one more time, one more push-up, one more lap, one more, right? That's, what, that's my job as your pastor. It's like how many times, how many different ways can I say, hey, read your Bible. Pray, pray one more time. Say, say, say God is good and he only does good, right? I'm your, I'm your trainer, I'm your cheerleader, I'm encouraging you. 
I'm correcting you. Like, hey, you're doing that wrong. If you lift that weight like that, you're going to hurt yourself. There's, there's biblical overlap. Right? If you pray prayers like that, you might hurt yourself. You might hurt other people. If you talk to other people like that, you're probably going to hurt. You're hurting them and you don't know you're hurting them. Let's deal with this. Set an example in love. Set an example in your faith. Show other people what it's like to have faith. And this is hard because it's not always perfect. Like sometimes we want, we want certain fruit of faith. Right? We want faith, like there, we want our faith to be a formula for results. I prayed this and look, it happened. And then sometimes it doesn't happen. But faith isn't a, faith isn't a formula. Right? Sometimes you will be disappointed. Sometimes it won't happen. And faith, setting an example in faith, is that you do not waver even in the face of, challenge. Just like Whitney was talking about during the offering message, right? I will yet praise him. When there's no cattle in the stalls, I will yet praise him. When the provision hasn't come yet, I will yet praise him. When the breakthrough hasn't come yet, I will yet praise him. That's faith. That's setting the example. Right? Not the, like, we, we want the testimony and we're believing for the testimony, but that's only part of the faith. Faith is believing the thing that's hoped for. Right? As Hebrews says, it's the evidence of things unseen. It's not seen yet. You're calling it into reality. That's, that's the first step of faith. But faith is walking through it even when you don't see. And then we also set an example in our purity. This is definitely something that is neglected in our society. That desire to just be pure before the Lord. To have a pure heart. And purity isn't, purity isn't just sexual purity. Purity is so much deeper it's so much larger and beyond. And, and yeah, probably sexual purity is implied here too, but purity of heart, purity of soul is deeper than that. And you've got to have a desire to, like, uh, to set an example in this. That probably means you hold yourself to a little higher standard. Right? It's not your job to go around telling everybody else, you have to be pure, you have to be more pure, you have to do this, you have to do, like, because otherwise you're falling for the old wives' tales, right? But if God's holding you to a certain standard, if God's holding you to a certain level of accountability, you've got to meet it. You've got to follow through on that. And it's hard to do. Verse 13, Paul says, Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. A prophetic message confirmed the gift that Timothy was called to preach. 
Timothy was called to teach. And Paul said, don't neglect that gift. God gave you that gift. Like we look at Paul and we're like one of the greatest preachers ever. One of the, one of the greatest teachers ever, right? He wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. Like Paul, what a great teacher. And the greatest teacher that we think of is encouraging a young man and saying, don't neglect your gift. Teach. Preach. Declare the word of God. Publicly read the scriptures. What am, what am I doing today? Publicly reading the scriptures. What are you called to do? Publicly read the scriptures. Declare the word of God. And probably, probably some of you in this room, you don't have the gift to teach. But you know what? You have the opportunity for a prophetic gift. There's not, there's not a single one of you in this room that God doesn't want to use. That when hands get laid on you and things get spoken over you and declared, it says you have a calling. You have a future. Don't neglect it. Some of you maybe already know what that is and it's starting to take shape in your life and you feel God stirring. And some of you are like, I would just like to know. Like, what's my calling? Who am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do with my life? This is how you start to know. If you train godliness, you put yourself in a position to get the prophetic gift. To walk in your calling. And whatever giftings that you already have, don't neglect them. Train them. Train them. My, I, have a gift, I have a gift to teach. But it was trained. It didn't, I didn't start out there. Like you guys have heard some of, some of me tell some of my story with, with teaching in the ministry school. And I started out just as an assistant teacher. And I just sat and watched. And I prepared, I prepared to teach, if given the opportunity, but I didn't teach. And I remember moments, even before that, where I was sitting in a, in a ministry school class, and they said, all right, it's your turn. And I was supposed to talk for eight minutes. And I had like 30 minutes worth of material ready. And I blew through it in three minutes. You ever do that? You're like so nervous. You're, so, you're talking fast. You're like, oh. <laughs> like it doesn't just happen magically, guys. Like God stirs the gift and you know, you start to feel and sense the calling, the drawing of the Lord. And I remember moments where I was like overprepared and then I'd get up and I'd say it all in three minutes. Well, didn't quite make that eight minute category. But pretty soon I was meeting that eight minutes and then 10 minutes. And then I remember the, class, the first class assignment where I had to get up and talk for 30 minutes. Oh boy. How am I going to have enough to say? And each one of you in this room have a gift. It may not be teaching, but you have a gift. You have an opportunity to receive a gift. Maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't received that gift yet, and God right now is stirring in you. You're like, God, I want that. I want that gift. 
Stir in me that gift. Prepare me that gift. Help me to train for my gift. Help me not to neglect my gift. And how do you get it? Paul says, the gift that was given to you through the prophetic message when the body of elders laid hands on you. And I love this interaction because Paul knows exactly the moment. Timothy knows exactly the moment. He's reminding him, remember when everybody gathered around you and prayed for you and laid hands on you? That moment was so awesome. There's some of you in this room, you need that moment. But you're not ready. (coughs) Excuse me. You're not ready for that moment yet. If we all gathered around you and some of the more mature believers in the room gathered around you and we prayed for you and we declared a gift over you, you wouldn't even be ready to receive it. And that's okay. This isn't a down on you. Right? Some of you are really new in your faith. But this this message is to encourage you to be ready for when that moment comes. Because it's coming. As our church continues to grow, as our church continues to mature, there there are prophetic gifts that are needed by the body. Like, there's prophetic gifts that are already here in this room and active, and people have been training themselves. They've been preparing, and it's brought us to where we are. But they know, and I know, that it's not going to take us where we need to go. It needs to multiply. Their prophetic gift needs to increase and, and multiply in you. The visions that they have, that they've seen, the visions that I have, that I've seen, need to multiply in this room. But they're not going to multiply if you ain't, if you ain't training. There's people in this room I could call up right now and you know, you see. You see other people with potential. You see other people that could be, they're so close. They're so close. You're so close. And God's wanting to raise you up and make you a Timothy in our body. And you gotta gotta let them you got to start taking action. It started, it started, you, you, you did good. You started just coming to church. You're like, it was a big thing to just come to church every week on a Sunday. Sometimes it's, some days it's still a big thing for you to just show up. But now you've been showing up and God's saying, all right, it's time to go a little bit deeper. It's time to grow a little bit more. It's time to train that gift a little bit more. It's time for you to tell yourself on Monday and on Tuesday, God is good and has good for me. Where you prepare the seedbed to grow. You water the plant, you water the seed so that when someone comes and plants something else and says, you have a prophetic gift, you're called to nations, you have a a preaching gift, you have whatever, like whatever it is and they speak it into you and we lay hands on you and it's stirred up and you are ready. God's making you ready. God's preparing you. So notice he says, until I come, 
devote yourself. Timothy, until I come back, devote yourself. So what if we kind of, what if we took that to heart? Until we're back here next Sunday, devote yourself. Until we come back the Sunday after that, devote yourself. Set some time aside. Train. Train yourself for godliness. Because you have a place in this church. God wants to use little old you in this church. You, the one that doesn't deserve it. Yeah, especially because you don't deserve it. He's qualifying you. He's raising you up. He's been stirring in you. You're hearing my words and you're like, yeah, I feel it. I know he's been stirring in me and I'm not sure. You just got to say yes. You just got to say yes. And not neglect the gift. Would you stand with me? Jesus. I thank you for the group of people in this room. I thank you for the gifts that are already active in this room and the people that you have raised up. But God, we want to multiply. We want to grow, not for our own sake, but for your glory. God, we want to train ourselves in godliness. We want to train ourselves and devote ourselves. God, we want to stop neglecting all of the stuff that you've put in us. all of those stirrings, all of those promptings, all of those times where we looked at our Bible and we grabbed the gaming remote or the TV remote. We looked at our phone and we saw the Bible app button and we clicked another one instead. We felt you saying, hey, talk to me. Spend some time with me. And we called another friend instead. God, I pray today, stir in us again. Stir in us that desire, fan into flame the gift. The gifts that are present in this room. The future that you have for us, God. The future that you have, the destiny, the callings, God. There's some of you in this room that you, you've been longing for purity. And you're not, you don't even know how. You're like, how can I be pure? I don't, I don't even know. I can't even imagine what that would be like. And God's stirring in you the possibility that you could be made pure and you could have your innocence restored. 
There's people in this room that you have a gift of faith. You just believe and trust and it's almost, it's like it's easy for you. But it's an untrained gift. It's still in its beginning, early, youthful stages. Jesus. We pray right now. Help us to actively train. To not walk out of here motivated for 20 minutes and then forget what we heard. God, help us to not just be watchers, but to actually be doers. Doers of ministry, doers of the work, called to be Timothy's, called to serve, called to pray, called to set an example in our speech, in our life, in our love, in our faith, in our purity. Would you repeat after me and just say, Jesus, My life is yours. Everything I have, everything I am, it's yours. I give you my life. I give you my speech. I give you my faith. I give you my purity. I give you my love. Help me to serve you and set an example in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. Now it's time to put your faith into action by applying this word to your life. If you'd like help taking your next steps with Jesus, contact us at revivechicago.church.com.